All right, it is a communion Sunday, so the schedule is a little different than normal. So I'd ask that you would turn uh, to Deuteronomy 22. We're actually starting at verse 13, which is halfway through uh, the chapter. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Bible. If you um, get to Joshua, you've gone a little bit too far. If you get to Psalms, you've gone way too far. So go back to the left, you'll find Deuteronomy, and we'll be in chapters 22, 23, and the very first part of 24. It's very long, I'm not going to read the whole thing, I will read some parts of it as we go through. So, um, and I almost forgot, I'm supposed to pray for the Afghan refugee ministry team, and there was something specific which I just blanked on. So, Emery, would you remind me real quick? Housing. Housing. Okay. So, for those that don't know, we have an Afghan refugee ministry team that's going to help to, uh, we hope, resettle an Afghan uh, refugee family when they come here working with Samaritan's Purse. And so, we have a number of folks involved with that. And... Uh, so we're going to be praying for that on and off, like for the whole month and, and probably for a number of months. Um, but anyway, the immediate need will be to um, find housing. So when a family does come, we have a place for them to go. So let's pray for that, and then we'll get started uh, with today's message. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the team members working to create a safe environment for Afghan uh, refugees, for some family or a person or a couple, we, we don't know, Lord, but whoever it is that you have chosen, uh, we pray that um, you would make all of the logistics work out and that we might serve them well uh, with love and care that they might uh, see the gospel in us. Lord, we pray especially uh, for the need for housing. Uh, we live in an area where housing is very difficult, very expensive, very scarce. And so we know this is gonna take a work of your spirit uh, to make something available um, for this family. And we pray that you would do that, that your spirit would work uh, in us and in our team and uh, in this whole process that we are going through um, and that you would provide so that a family who is fleeing persecution and oppression uh, might have a safe uh, place to live. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you for reminding me. The, uh, well, let's again uh, turn to uh, uh, the scripture today, again, Deuteronomy, and uh, let me open our time here. Uh, in a, another uh, word of prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, this is your word and we need it while we wait with the people of Israel and the land between. Thank you for giving us the book of Deuteronomy and making us your people. You have brought us to the Ten Commandments as the gracious revelation of you and of us. You teach us that the law not only gives us the gifts of people and property, but commands us to protect and preserve them and to keep our promises, but it's hard to do. We're by nature greedy, we're by nature selfish, we're by nature sinful. And these commandments are focusing us on protecting and preserving the rights of others, 
So as always, give us the desire to learn from you this morning and help us uh, to consider what it means to protect and preserve the rights of others. And so we pray, speak through the words of Moses this morning and by the power of the Holy Spirit, help us know God more and to see Jesus clearly. For in his name we pray, amen and amen. Well, we live in confusing times. I read this the other day and I thought it reflected well why people are so confused today over issues of sexuality. Now, I know this might be offensive to some, it's not meant that way. Others might find it humorous and it probably is meant that way. But mostly it's meant to get us to think about why people are so confused today over issues of sexuality. Now, none of this that I'm gonna read uh, reflects any of my beliefs or opinions or um, so please don't think that these statements are what uh, I or the church or the PCA actually think they're not. It's just to demonstrate the point that we live in confusing times. So with that said, try to follow along in what is an intellectual exercise. So here it goes. Gender is a social construct, period. At the same time, it's always good when women can break glass ceilings. We should celebrate all the firsts that we see women do because women are certainly not men. By women, of course, I mean anyone who identifies as a woman, including people we used to know as men. Sex is a socially derived category that assigns certain physical differences and then labels those differences as male or female. There are no immutable distinctions between men and women. We are all on a spectrum we can all change, unless we're talking about desires. Coming out as gay or lesbian is something we can be proud of because people can't change the way they were born. In fact, it should be illegal to try to change people who are born a certain way, but some people should definitely be able to change the way they were born in terms of gender. And doctors and counselors and religious leaders should do everything they can to encourage that. Sometimes our bodies don't align with our true selves. Never forget, your self-identity is your genuine identity, except when it comes to race and ethnicity. You should never claim an ethnic or racial identity that isn't yours. Be careful what you eat and what you wear. You can't appropriate someone else's culture, but you can't appropriate someone else's gender or go with no gender at all. We've been socialized into a gender system that tells us how to think and how to act. The sooner we do away with the notion of gender, the better. But remember, women have been held back by the evils of patriarchy. Women are oppressed, men are oppressors, that's a fact. Not that women or men are anything more than fluid or culturally conditioned modes of self-identification, obviously. Still, we shouldn't do away with women's sports. It's essential that every college have as many sports for women as for men, who must have equal opportunities for both sexes, sports for women, sports for men. Those categories are absolutely critical. But if men want to participate as women in women's sports, that's also really good because the sexual difference upon which the existence of women's and men's sports rests, those differences don't really exist. But don't get me wrong. Women have it harder than men trying to balance being a mom and pursuing a career. Just to be clear though, men can also be moms. Birthing persons come in all genders. Not that gender is anything more than what our culture tells us it is, don't forget that. And don't forget women get paid less than men in the workplace and are underrepresented in Fortune 500 companies and we've still never had a woman president, or at least not a president we took to be a woman. It's hard to say what a woman is without biologists weighing in. Not that being a man or a woman is rooted in biology, that goes without saying. 
Well, whatever a woman is, we know this much for sure. Women have a right to do whatever they want with their bodies. Reproductive freedom is the most important women's issue of our time. But I'm not saying that only women reproduce, men can too. Being a woman has many challenges. That's why it's important we protect women and make them feel safe, except in restrooms, locker rooms, and prisons. Then it's okay for women to feel unsafe around men because everyone knows those men are really women. It's also worth remembering that men and women don't have to look a certain way, but if a man becomes a woman, he should definitely pick a woman's name and try not to look masculine anymore. I mean, if there were any such thing as masculinity, because obviously there isn't. But sometimes there is, and then it's toxic. Here's the bottom line. Gender is a social construct. I know it's complicated, but don't worry. The less you think about it, the more it will make sense. Now, isn't that clear? It was written by my friend Kevin DeYoung. But hopefully what is clear, and the whole point of that, is to demonstrate we live in really confusing times. And that's important because we are back in Moses' exposition of the Ten Commandments. And our world is highly confused on the relevance, application, and even the appropriateness of the commandments. And nowhere are we more confused then the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery, and the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. Now why are these two commandments so confusing? They seem pretty simple and straightforward. Well, it's largely because we want them to be confusing. And we want to be confused because these two commandments are nearly universally recognized by all people and cultures as being true. And yet, these two commandments are nearly universally excused by all people and cultures who don't think they're true when we break them. So essentially, we think they're true when we apply them to you, but not so much to me. And that tends to be universal. If you break those commandments, it's really bad. But if I break them, you know, I probably have good reasons. Well, we, as I said earlier, we have a lot of text today, and I'm not going to read it all. I am going to pick some representative verses to make some big points. And I am doing that because I'm combining these two commandments by looking at the principles behind them. Now, I wish I could claim this as an original idea, but the writer of Proverbs beat me to it. It's amazing how clearly the ancient writer of Proverbs nails modern times. He understood human nature. The issues he faced three millennia ago uh, may be a little different, um, but they're essentially the same content. Listen to the following promotion by the woman of folly and the divine warning that follows in Proverbs 9, 13 through 18. The woman folly is loud. She is seductive and knows nothing. She sits at the door of her house. She takes a seat on the highest places of the town, calling to those who pass by, who are going straight on their way. Whoever is simple, let him turn in here. And to him who lacks sense, she says, stolen water is sweet, and bread eaten in secret is pleasant. But he does not know that the dead are there, that her guests are in the depths of Sheol. At this point in Proverbs, the writer is 
finishing five chapters on resisting adultery. And here, adultery, seventh commandment, is described as stealing, eighth commandment. Now, the adulterous woman here is called a woman of folly, or the woman folly, in contrast to a woman of wisdom. But the descriptive language is the same as used to describe the forbidden woman of Proverbs 5, the evil woman of Proverbs 6, and the wayward woman of Proverbs 7. Now remember, the contrast is between wisdom and folly. And women are used here because he is writing to sons. Now I'm sure it would be similar, probably worse, uh, if he were writing to daughters. Or maybe he would just summarize it like I did with my daughters by saying, boys are bad. <laughs> it's true. Now, I usually get some pushback from the boys in the congregation, but I never get any pushback from the men. So keep that in mind. One more thing to keep in mind. As much as we may want to please God in the keeping of the commandments, we all fall short. As long as we're living in these old bodies, some of us older than others, as long as we're living in a corrupt world, as long as we're exposed to the one Jesus called the father of lies, we're going to struggle, and at times we're going to fall. All of us are works in progress. None of us have the Ten Commandments down pat. Not really. And the Seventh Commandment is no less painful and personal than the others. In fact, it's probably more painful and more personal than anything we've seen so far. I doubt there's an adult in the room who hasn't in one way or another been confronted by the pain of adultery. Uh, you may have grown up in a home where betrayal took place and you still feel resentment when you think about it. You might be a husband or wife who found your spouse was cheating and your whole world fell apart. You still feel the rejection. It's just as real as if somebody had died. And then there's those who've actually broken this commandment themselves. And no one has to tell you it was wrong. To hear this commandment is to relive the shame and the guilt all over again. But there's a sense in which we're all guilty. If we really grasp what these commandments mean, we'll begin to see that. And so to help us understand these commandments, we're going to start with the specific principles of the commandments the specific principles. Law stressing uh, the importance of avoiding mixing crops and animals and clothes and material we saw earlier in chapter 22. Reinforcing the warnings about mixing with the pagan people and practices of the Canaanites. Purity is a concept that Israel still needs to grasp. And I say that because God keeps telling them about it. So clearly he doesn't think they've got it yet. And so we have the seventh commandment, which is the purity principle. The purity principle. The seventh commandment addresses sexual purity. Faithfulness in marriage is central. But again, the principle is to be applied more widely. Sexual conduct is an important part of any society. And a number of the laws here were actually way ahead of their time. You can read through those laws in chapter, uh, the last half of chapter 22, and some of them look kind of really archaic. Um, but the reality is they were way ahead of their time, particularly when it came to protecting women, and particularly young women. 
For example, look at Deuteronomy 22, verses 25 through 27. It says, but if in the open country a man meets a young woman who is betrothed, and the man seizes her and lies with her, then only the man who lay with her shall die. But you shall do nothing to the young woman. She has committed no offense punishable by death. For this case is like that of a man attacking and murdering his neighbor because he met her in the open country. And although the betrothed young woman cried for help, there was no one to rescue her. So we have an element of protection here. Of course, it's balanced with this ultimate sanction. We see that throughout Deuteronomy of people who are sinning, particularly in this area, often would be put to death. The laws bear the hallmark of divine insight regarding our fallen human nature. If we looked at the rest of the chapter, we would see equal accountability. There are laws here uh, that you can't falsely accuse someone, which is going to lead us to the next commandment next week. Um, but neither the man, if he falsely accuses a girl of immorality, or the woman, if she falsely accuses a man of rape, can evade punishment. Uh, for his or her evil. So there's a rule of equal accountability. If you remember when they brought the uh, woman caught in adultery to Jesus, one of the glaring questions is where's the guy? Because the law applied to both. And so it was an unjust situation right from the start based on these laws in Deuteronomy. Another important principle that underlies these laws states that if a man violates a woman, he should marry her. The act itself constitutes a commitment to the woman that can only be honored by getting married. And that's also that sort of a preventative measure uh, as well, geared to protect women. Uh, and that's also because if a woman has been raped, then she would not be considered a suitable person to be married, and she'd be left on her own. And so you would have to take responsibility for that person. Again, the law is designed to protect the woman. Very unusual in the ancient world, in the ancient Near East. And most of these laws have a protection behind them, even if it's a very, very different culture than ours. Um, but we do see that principle there of protection. Now, sexual conduct is closely linked with worship in some of the Canaanite religions, so it's not a big leap to consider the exclusions from the assembly of the Lord. That's the first part of chapter 23. Purity is to apply to the whole camp, to all the people. And in some, if we went through all those uh, lessons, um, we would find that the lesson is essentially what Jesus taught us in Mark chapter 7, he says, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, getting all the commandments here, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All of these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So most of what Jesus is saying and most of what the laws of Deuteronomy are saying is we're unclean on the inside. That's the point. And like the Pharisees, we might pride ourselves on keeping the outside respectable in a good state of repair, but the reality is we're just whitewashing all manner of uncleanness on the inside. 
When it comes to the law, when it comes to sin, we have to deal with the inside. Now, all of the laws in these chapters are designed to protect the innocent, preserve the purity of the people as a whole, as well as individuals, and enable people to keep their promises, or vows as they're called here. Understanding Deuteronomy's rules does require you to kind of put yourself in their shoes. You have to use your imagination a little bit because implicit in these rules is the importance of family and particularly extended family in the context of the villages where most Israelites lived. The average village would compose uh, like three uh, extended family groups, about 50 people each. And the extended family then would be spread over a number of households. And the head of each family group is responsible for ensuring that a girl from his extended family uh, made a good marriage with someone from a family in another village. A good marriage would enhance the relationships between the two extended families, between the two uh, villages, as well as being good for the woman and the man. The, there, there's some odd laws in here. One of them says that a man should not marry his father's wife. Now that at first strikes us as odd. It's not talking about his mother. Usually a patriarch might have more than one wife. And the, what he's talking about here is that marriage would be designed to enhance the man's position. The father's obviously died. Essentially, if you marry one of the father's wives, you're claiming to take the father's place, essentially become the new patriarch of this extended family, which would prevent the village from having a say over who the next uh, or the new patriarch is going to be. So the law is really designed to protect the village, the extended family, because somebody can't sort of usurp the will of the family. But one thing you'll see very quickly is they live under vastly different cultural assumptions about marriage than we have today, particularly in the West, where marriage is all about having a close personal relationship. There, it's much more about community and the village and the family. And it still is in many parts of the world um, today. But where the laws, these laws were implemented, it meant that in that community, everyone had a place. It's sort of the original no child left behind. No one was short something to eat as long as somebody had enough. But everybody was much less independent than we are today, particularly children. And none of our children feel that they're independent. But compared to that time, they would be uh, shocked at the level of independence that our children have. Um, now, all of these laws that are about the Seventh Commandment get reinforced when we get to the Eighth Commandment, because they're actually very similar. And the Eighth Commandment is the property principle, but you're going to see there's a lot of overlap. The property principle, the Eighth Commandment prohibits stealing, it's very simple, you shall not steal. But there's areas of life where that principle applies that can be easily overlooked. One of these is a sheltering and escaped servant. That's a duty, presumably that springs from Israel's own experience of bondage. We see that in Deuteronomy 23, 15 and 16. 
You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns, wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Knowing what they've been through as a people who have escaped from bondage should make them sympathetic to others in a similar plight. So that's one of these unique laws, but it comes under the Eighth Commandment. Another one we expect the uh, God of truth to require the fulfilling of any vows that we make. So again, we go to Deuteronomy 23, now to verses 21 to 23. It says, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You can't break a vow you don't make. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. So God keeps his promises. He expects us to keep ours. Such vows are voluntary, um, but it was preferable not to make them rather than to make them and break them. An unfulfilled vow, um, one of the examples is given is keeping property that you vowed to give to someone else. And they're saying, if you change your mind and keep it after having making a vow to give it to someone else, that's stealing, even though it was yours in the first place. And you change your mind, but you made a vow to give that to another person. You cannot keep it. That falls under the Eighth Commandment. So throughout these laws, we see there's a balance between protecting personal property and also guarding against a grasping spirit of wanting more. We also have laws under the Eighth Commandment concerning divorce, and we have laws of mercy. We would not often put those under the Eighth Commandment, but that's where Moses puts them. Look at the beginning of chapter 24. It says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes out and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her and writes her a certificate of divorce, and puts her in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Everything behind those laws essentially boil down to you can't treat women as property. That's the, the intent. That's the principle behind that. There's a bunch more there. We pick up at verse 5. We get a few more. It says, when a man is newly married, he shall not go out with the army or be liable for any other public duty. He shall be free uh, at home one year to be happy with his wife whom he has taken. Sounds like a wise law to me. No one shall take a mill or an upper millstone in pledge, for that would be taking a life in pledge. A mill or a millstone is how you earn a living in crushing grain. So if you take the millstone, they can't earn a living. You're taking away their, their ability to crush the grain and, and uh, to make food, to grind wheat and, and such on. And then verse 7, 
If a man is found stealing one of his brothers of the people of Israel and he treats him as a slave or sells him, then that thief shall die. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So we have about four different laws in that section. Well, the first set about divorce, we have the advantage of the Lord Jesus' explanation which basically tells that certificates of divorce are something of what uh, we would consider a necessary evil. Matthew 19, Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. And the reason behind these laws is because for much of history, wives were not only mistreated uh, by their husbands, but they were often treated as though they were property. And the idea of a divorce certificate was to guard the rights of the wife and to make any sending away uh, something official. You couldn't do this without the whole community knowing. And it's sort of a preventative measure to make the husband think twice before taking such a serious step. Now, the law about uh, your discharge from war or public duty for the first year of marriage has the intention of ensuring that a good foundation be laid for that relationship that's supposed to last a lifetime. You're not supposed to take a newly married person um, away um, for at least a year. The law about pledges, that's another mercy law, excuse me. <coughs> uh, it's to keep depriving someone of a means to um, of their means of subsistence. They need the millstone to mill the wheat and grain or whatever it is that they're making. And so if you take that as a pledge, they can't provide. Um, so you can't do that. The strictest laws of all involve the enslaving of someone else. In this case, he talks about a fellow Israelite. But this actually comes up multiple times in the book of Deuteronomy. Because this, this is a case where the Lord has already delivered that person from slavery. And to then rob them of their freedom and put them back into slavery makes you liable for the death penalty. Stealing people, much like modern day human trafficking, is considered the worst breach of the Eighth Commandment. And that has a whole lot to say to our history, to our world, um, but if you go all the way back to Deuteronomy and to the laws of Moses, it lays out right up front, this is completely off limits. Um, again, all of these laws are designed to protect the innocent, preserve the purity of people, and enable everyone to keep their promises. Now I will say there are exceptions uh, for the slavery rule, particularly in times of war. There are sort of what we would call war exceptions to that, but not in times of peace and prosperity. So these are the principles. Underneath all of them, and there's some that look very archaic and somewhat odd, there is this underlying principles to protect the innocent, preserve the purity of the people, and enable everyone to keep their promises. That's what underlies all of the laws of the Seventh and Eighth Commandment. Actually, all Ten Commandments, but those are the two we're talking about today. So those are the principles, but underneath those principles, there are some foundational issues. 
And that's the next point, the foundational issues of the commandments. And particularly looking here, we're talking about, it doesn't matter whether we're talking about marital or premarital or extramarital sexuality, homosexual or heterosexual marriage, you can boil down every and any perspective on marriage and human sexuality to three foundational issues, authority, belief, and worship. Authority is where it all begins. Everyone grounds his or her perspective of marriage and sexuality on someone's authority. Whoever has that authority has the right to define what a marriage is and how a human sexuality ought to be expressed. For someone in an immoral relationship, authority is that person's desire. Desire becomes the authority. And the definition of marriage then follows. Even the definition of fidelity, of faithfulness, adapts to the individual. And so one commentary uh, mentioned a website that promotes open marriage, I'll leave it unnamed, uh, claims that it's not unfaithfulness because neither spouse is breaking the pre-established rules. Quote, if you aren't breaking the rules, you're not cheating by definition. So you're not cheating because you have new rules. They basically say there really are no rules. Um, so according to them, the people in the relationship have the authority to define what faithfulness is and what faithfulness isn't. And that definition comes from believing they have the authority to define their marriage on their own terms according to their own desires. If marriage were just a simple social contract with mutually agreed upon terms, that might be true. But within a Christian worldview, the authority to define marriage belongs to God alone. God created humanity and marriage and sex, Genesis 2, Therefore, only God has the authority to define both marriage and the right use of our sexuality. And his commands are for our good. Therefore, every misuse of human sexuality expresses a denial of God's authority and is always to our detriment. It all begins with authority. Authority then directs belief. Belief is our response. To authority. So what you believe about human sexuality, actions, or identification is directly informed by uh, the person or idea you believe has authority. We see this principle in biblically-based convictions about marriage and sexuality. If you believe that God has the authority to define what is good and right for humanity, then your beliefs about sexuality, both action and identification, will reflect your acknowledgement of his authority. When it comes to sexual integrity and marriage, the root issue is not primarily what you do, but who you believe. I mean, the differences between these two ways of thinking go all the way back to the garden, Genesis 3. The first slouch towards sin began with doubting the authority and the motive for what God said which led to disbelieving what God said, which led to disobeying what God said. All sex outside the covenant of marriage includes this same deception. And we're deceived about the happiness and freedom it promises us. We're deceived about the consequences it'll bring. We're even deceived about the very purpose of sexuality and marriage altogether. 
because belief follows authority. If you have the wrong authority, you're going to end up with the wrong belief. And then worship is the expression of belief. Worship expresses our belief. What do you orient your life around? What purpose or person are you living for? Who do you value and hold in such high honor and esteem that everything else in your life is defined by it? Whatever it is or whomever it is, that's what you worship. And God created us and redeemed us to worship and glorify him. And so this worship encompasses everything we are, our entire being, including our sexuality, to the exclusion of everything and everyone else. Whenever I do a wedding ceremony, there comes a point where I talk about the rings and I hold up the rings. I say a number of things, but one of the things I say is this ring says yes to one person and no to everyone else. And I share that at every single wedding that I do. God created sexuality and marriage so that we would know and worship him. The entire point of marriage is to display the spiritual reality of Christ and his church. That's the point of Ephesians 5. God gave us marriage so we would know him and that we would understand concepts like exclusive covenant faithfulness. Throughout the Old Testament, faithfulness to the Lord is compared to faithfulness in marriage. The only way one can justify immorality is as if the Lord had said he was okay with his people worshiping other gods, which he never says. But if he did that, then serving him exclusively, he would be admitting that's too much to ask. And so adultery, even adultery by mutual consent, distorts the purpose for which God created marriage. Every choice we make with our God-given sexuality is an expression of worship. It leads us to worshiping either God or something else, or someone else. And the presence of immorality among professing believers is yet another manifestation of a culturally accommodating Christianity that seeks to worship the Lord on its own terms. Yet it's also a reminder that the true children of God are called to be set apart for him alone, to live under his authority, to believe his good, life-giving commands, and to worship him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. Why? Because Jesus fulfills all the commands in our place. Jesus lives a totally pure life. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus lived a life free of any kind of sexual temptation. The book of Hebrews tells us that he was tempted in every way, just as we are. That means he was tempted to lust after women or to fantasize or to have sex outside of marriage. He was tempted, but he never fell. He didn't let the first look turn into a second look. He didn't let his attraction to women overpower his self-controlled mind. And so when we fail at keeping the commandments, these or any of them, Jesus succeeds. He never sinned. And he was as red-blooded a man as any one of us here. Don't let anyone sell you a false, namby-pamby version of an asexual Jesus. Jesus was a man, he had normal male desires, but he didn't let his mind wander. He didn't let his eyes go where they shouldn't. Um, he didn't see women as sex objects. He never fell into sexual sin. 
In my mind, he's more of a man than I am or anyone I've ever met. He's the true man, the one who reflects God's image perfectly. And for that, I'm grateful. Because I know that when I mess up, Jesus succeeds. And his death covers my sin. And his covenant keeping replaces my covenant breaking. That's how he fulfills the seventh commandment. What about the eighth commandment? Well, isn't it interesting that when Jesus went to the cross to give the ultimate sacrifice of himself for our sins, he hung between two thieves. The greatest gift in all history was given between two thieves, two people who took from others. God came and identified with thieves. God could have arranged for Jesus to die on a single cross by himself, but he didn't. Everything about the cross and the death of Jesus was providentially arranged by God to communicate a message and to have meaning. God intentionally chose those two thieves because he wanted to identify with them and with us. And rather than hanging alone on a single cross, he put a thief on his right and a thief on his left. And he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to die with you and for you. That's the gospel. We can't save ourselves. Friends, we're all thieves. We've all stolen, large or small, we've all stolen. And God says, I'm going to come. And I'm going to offer the greatest display of love and giving and sacrifice. And the Bible tells us about a glorious exchange where God, in all of his riches and all of his grace and all of his blessings and abundance, comes to thieves and hangs besides them, uh, beside them and lets them see his generosity and his love and his giving spirit. Jesus became poor and hung between thieves, and because of this, he made us thieves rich. Now, if you're not convinced you're a thief, I would draw you to the shorter catechism questions on it because it covers a whole ton of areas, including if you've stolen somebody's reputation. If you've ever said something bad about another person, then you're a thief. You've stolen their reputation. But there's like 20 more applications. It's not just about things. And when we embrace that reality, then it changes our greedy, covetous hearts, hearts that say we never have enough, that are never content, hearts that want more. And they get changed. Because Jesus was numbered among thieves that he might suffer and die for our thievery. He died as a thief for thieves so that every thief who trusts in him could be forgiven and saved. That first thief to be saved was hanging right next to him, Luke 23. He said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. In that dying breath, he gave that man a promise of an inheritance that he had foolishly wasted his whole life trying to find. And in that one moment, Jesus reoriented the thief on the cross, helping him to see that only in God's chosen one could he finally find what he was looking for? And so can you, and so can I, and that's good news. Think about that, you need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, thank you 
that you have spoken to us by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and then see our Savior. God, our Father, we bow before you and we confess our failure to accept your authority, to believe your word, to worship you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We still think we can do it better ourselves. We can trust ourselves, believe in ourselves, and worship whatever we want. And we consistently fail. And so by your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit, we ask that you would enable us to return to you, enable us to remember you, enable us to receive and rest on you alone for salvation as you've promised in the gospel. Grant that we may live like people who love you, so that we may receive your promised blessings and work in each of our hearts this year as we learn to trust you and your word and through the book of Deuteronomy draw us ever closer to the one who fulfilled the commands in our place that we might finally find what we're looking for, your son, our savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.